0: AD. Uh, this evening we'll talk about uh, Clement of Alexandria. This is a uh, another one of those uh, converts, who, a well-educated converts that were coming into the church that we've been talking about, uh, the most uh, famous being Justin the Philosopher, who is known as Justin, the Mar- Justin Martyr, who we talked about earlier. And Clement is very similar to this type in that he's a uh, He's, he's interested in philosophy, just just like Justin. He searched around, uh, trying to find uh, what the teachings were best, and then he, he also, once joining the church, he then uh, used his background in the pagan world, in pagan philosophy, to turn around and address the pagan world, the way that Justin uh, addressed the emperors, Marcus Aurelius, to try to uh, defend the church to the Roman Empire Clement also is writing back to the educated pagan world that he comes from to try to explain Christianity to them On the, so in the one sense he's a, a figure who's very familiar to us very similar to the the apologist so we could uh, list him as an apologist but he's a uh, He's much more than than an apologist. Another uh, factor of his life was that uh, he he apparently grew up in Athens, in Greece, and then he began to, when he became a Christian, he began to uh, travel around to visit uh, what he describes as the elders who preserved the apostolic tradition. And he he traveled quite extensively, uh, going first to well, at first he was studying with someone in Greece, and then he went to southern Italy, studied with another elder there, and then he went over to Lebanon, and then later to the to uh, what's now northern Iraq, uh, the area what he calls Assyria, and another place in the east which he doesn't specify, and then ends up uh, in Egypt. And in these places he's gathering up uh, the apostolic tradition, and in this since he's very similar to Irenaeus, with Irenaeus' focus on the preservation of the apostolic tradition in the Church as a um, a way, as an alternative to the Gnostic uh, teachings that were being invented by the various Gnostics. Clement, I should just geographically, where is he located? Uh, 150 to 215, I mean, not geographically, uh, chronologically, he's living at the same time as Irenaeus, who dies in uh, who become Irenaeus becomes a bishop in 177, when uh, Clement is a young man starting his journeys. He uh, Irenaeus dies in two about 202. He's martyred. This is the time when um, Clement was teaching at the school in Alexandria. So he at that time he's a Christian teacher. So his life is contemporary. With Irenaeus, Irenaeus would be an older uh, contemporary of his. Also, Justin, the philosopher, died in 165, so when Clement was 15. So he's, again, an older contemporary. The um, person we discussed last time, uh, last month, was uh, Tertullian of Carthage. He would be about the same time period. They would be almost exactly contemporary. Uh, Tertullian, though, living in North Africa... And being part of the Latin world, there's you know, not really any contact between them. One of the interesting things about uh, Clement, when traveling around looking for this apostolic witness, and he, is he, he meets all these elders, but we don't know who any of them are. Actually, well, we we know who the last one is, um, and he'll tell. I'll talk about him, and we guess that one of the one of the others may have been Tatian, a disciple of Justin the philosopher but uh but the others we we don't we don't know who they are we don't have any writings, so it's um a, a kind of uh warning to us that we think we you know that we have all the we have all these books, but actually the books that we have are what survived and the the knowledge that we have of, of the people of the early Christianity are what you know was preserved in in Eusebius but the but there were a lot of uh, Christians out there and, and people who were famous that that we don't know who they are and we don't have anything from them. And part of this was because of the uh, time of the persecutions under Diocletian in the late 4th century. Uh, one of the things that the persecutions did was burn all the Christian books, so uh, as many as they could get their hands on. So a lot of Christian literature that was current uh in the 200 oh, from 100s and 200s um, was destroyed right about 300 and so uh, part of what Eusebius is doing is kind of collecting the pieces and trying to at the after the persecution trying to put together an account of the church of the history of the church prior to the persecution and uh so we owe a lot to his his work but there's there's a lot obviously that we, that uh, was not preserved So that's, as part of his travels around and and his interest in collecting all this, um, Clement picked up lots of information. And so his works are a kind of treasure trove of information about the early church. And that's why when you read Eusebius, Eusebius does tell us about Clement. And uh, he has a a couple sections on his life. But but actually Clement uh, shows up in Eusebius. Far more frequently than than his own life does, and that, and the reason for that is that uh, Eusebius, in reconstructing the history of the early centuries, is relying on Clement frequently for uh, historical information, and so he's uh, full of the tidbits, you know, that help that help Eusebius get this together, and that's part of this this emphasis on the on the uh, tradition. The emphasis on tradition has to do with his historical place, which we talked about, his contemporary with Irenaeus, uh, one of the things, what did Irenaeus' life was spent combating Gnosticism. And so a major feature of Clement's work is the opposition to Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the uh, kind of importation of let's say Iranian dualism into uh the Christian and Jewish Christian worlds gnosticism is the rejection of the material world so uh so matter is evil rejection therefore of uh of marriage and especially uh procreation so rejects these things uh and uh, so the the kind of um the rejection of God sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Yes, right. The uh oh another part of this is the rejection of the old testament because of the rejection of, of the creator God and uh and so the rejection of the goodness of creation. So Clement, like Irenaeus, is having to deal with well, because Alexandria, being a very wealthy city and a center of culture, uh, is also a place where Gnosticism had become uh, very popular. And the uh, in the intellectual circles of the city, as where people were turning to Christianity, they were also being uh, tempted into Gnosticism. So uh, Clement has several two things that he's trying to do. One is, so one of the reasons why all of this uh, emphasis on the traditions of the elders is important is because, again, like, Ignatius, like Irenaeus, he wants to compare the apostolic Christianity to the Christian, uh, individual Christian, let's say, not Christian, but uh, individual cults uh, developed by, of Gnostic cults developed by the various Gnostic teachers. And this uh, we talked about uh, last couple of years ago Valentinian, and um, he's uh, so he's a little bit young. He would have been a I mean older again older contemporary. He would have died when Clement was uh, 15, but his followers were uh, very active in Gaul as we saw with Irenaeus, and also were active in Egypt throughout uh, Clement's life and afterwards. So part of this uh, emphasis on tradition was to overcome versus Gnosticism, so okay, so particularly apost- the apostolic tradition. Okay. The other um, interest of, of Clement is that one of the teachers that he had was this uh, person he went to consult with, this person, who started out as a disciple of Justin the <laughs> philosopher, but kind of very similarly to to Tertullian, he turned. Tatian turned to a um, sort of a more radical sect. In, in this case, uh, the Ancretites. Uh, so Ancretism is the rejection. E N C R A T I S M, rejection of marriage, and but for different reasons, marriage and wine. They were not uh, Gnostics. They and also actually um, another significant thing, and and philosophy. They were the, the Gnostics' idea was that um, the material world was evil. So therefore, uh, for them, you know, they had no problem. So the Gnostics didn't have any problem with immorality, but they, what they didn't want was children. But the, uh, the Ancretism is kind of more similar to uh, Tertullian's Montanism in that the emphasis there was on a very strict morality and that uh, marriage was, was too sinful. You know, it was so they were, they were rejecting was uh, sort of um, any kind of moral laxity, and to them, uh, so therefore, marriage not became right. below below the uh, line there that was allowed, and so wine, so any kind of indulgence uh, in in human normal human life was seen as improper. And Tatian comes to reject therefore reject all of philosophy. What not and, and and Ancretism have in common therefore are. The rejection of the good, the the participation in God's creation as something good. So both of them are, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, rejectionist uh, sects where they, where you, you are saved through your rejection of the world. So you either, you're either rejecting it in order to. uh, Live an immoral life, I guess, or rejecting it to live, you know, a sort of monastic life. But in either case, it's it's this it's the rejection that saves you. What uh, Clement's work now in understanding who is he? So who is he writing? You know, who is he faced with uh, as his um, alternatives that he's trying to defend the Christian faith from? We can now appreciate what he's going to be writing about. He wrote three uh major works that we have preserved. Uh one is called uh the exhortation to the uh, to the to the Greeks. The uh this one is very similar to the this is an apologetic work. He's writing he's uh, well, I should say in in the how what happened to his life after traveling all around. Um, if I should finish up that part. He, uh, he gets to Alexandria. There, he finds his favorite teacher, the uh, elder uh, is Pantanius, who uh, Pantanus, sorry, who himself was a Greek philosopher. He was a Stoic from Sicily, who had. Become a Christian, uh, gone off to India as a missionary, uh, sometime probably around the 170s, and ended up coming back to Alexandria where he became a teacher. Now, the uh, Justin, when he went to Rome, do you remember he he had opened up a, a philosophical school which was Christian, just but in a way the way that all philosophers did they they went into town and of put up their uh, sign and said, "You know, here I am. You know, ready to give lessons. Uh, students, sign up, please." And you know, that's how they that's how they lived. But they um, in Alexandria, according to Eusebius, what happens is that these philosophical teachers didn't just remain uh, private, but they but it seems like the church incorporated them into a, a let's say a deliberate ministry to the uh, City that they were in, and, and Alexandria being a uh, highly educated city, a center of Greek philosophy and culture, the church found it uh, useful to have these philosophers uh, teach Christianity to the philosophical world, you know, around them as a way of uh, helping people to convert and enter enter into the church. So it. Uh, Sometimes it's called the catechetical school, and when you think of catechism, you think of, uh, you know, rote lessons uh, that are kind of uh, not philosophical but very simple. But in, in Alexandria, the case was that the it was a kind of this combination of the philosopher's independence philosophical school uh, being integrated into the church's missionary work that created what they what's called a catechetical school but actually we would think of as more of a philosophical school because that's who that's who they were trying to address with people uh, pagan people who were trained in Greek philosophy. So Pantanos, um, he also uh he became so he became a uh, teacher in, in Alexandria and this is where uh Clement ends up studying with Pantanus for some years, and then, uh, on Pantanus' death, uh, Clement takes over the school. And he's so start of what he's doing is, is not only uh, trying to address the, let's say, the heretical uh, teachings, but but also he's trying to reach out to the pagan uh, Greeks that are around him, and to bring them into the church. So again, back to exhortation to the Greeks, it's a very similar type of work to what the other apologists had done, except it's not addressed to emperors. Uh, Justin was trying to defend Christianity to the emperor Marcus Aurelius because they wanted him to stop persecuting the church. But what Clement is doing is he's writing to the average uh, educated person. He's not writing to uh, civil officials. He's writing to the ordinary person to try to explain to them why they should be Christian. And so his arguments are not so much legal the way they would be in Justin or in Tertullian's uh, apologetic writings, but uh, philosophical. And so what he talks about, uh, and I should say that one of the other very distinguishing uh, things about Clement is that he was incredibly well-educated. He's constantly quoting not only from the scriptures, but also from... uh, Plato, huge uh, amount of that. A Homer, Hesiod, uh, Greek poets. He's just uh, full of uh, of classical quotations because he's appealing to classically educated. In other words, so it wouldn't just do to quote the Bible to a pagan Greek and say, "Well, look, the Bible says this, so you should. Uh, this is what you should do." But he's quoting all of the uh, classical authors that this person's familiar with and saying, "Look what they're saying." This is just like what the Gospel says here. So actually here's a whole section where he um, kind of gives you Plato and says, well, this is what Plato was saying, and here is how Christ fulfilled that in the Gospel. You see. So he's, he's reaching to them where they're at. And so that's uh, another thing about him that's, I guess, kind of unusual, that he's, he's consciously addressing uh, the non-Christian audience on its own terms. Yes
1: I uh, can't remember if it's specifically Clement, but the, it seems like the apologist had a, an idea that that the Greek philosophers got their wisdom through Moses and the prophets. Well, and that in a sense, what he's doing will. is
0: yeah. We'll uh, talk about that. I mean, he he has that idea in there, but he has it kind of in the context of a of a bigger <laughs> uh, idea, which I'll talk about as also extend as why he's using this the two. But his uh, his arguments in the Exhortation to the Greeks, is essentially what he's doing is taking the arguments of the Greek philosophers, because the philosophers, you know, Socrates did not believe in uh, polytheism. I mean, so he, Socrates was put to death because he did not believe in Greek paganism. So he uses these philosophers' arguments to refute paganism. Also he... Um, talks about the mysteries and the and the immorality in the Greek mythology and their and their different rites, and it says that just from a kind of uh, point of view of morality and and decency, also logic that that all these myths are kind of ridiculous as well as dis- disgraceful, that therefore paganism uh, is not good. And that Christianity. that he was arguing that Christianity really conforms to the ideals that the Greek philosophers were holding, rather than rather than the uh, in a sense the, the the Greek paganism which they themselves rejected. So in some sense he might be kind of uh, preaching to the choir because the philosophers themselves, those who were following a philosophical life, didn't uh, put much credence in Greek mythology, but he's using that to show that. You see the the pagan world that you come from, you agree with us that that's disgraceful. So you should also agree that what's here in the gospel is really fulfilling where you're coming from, what, what you're looking for. So that's his uh, kind of appeal to the, to the Greeks. His second uh, major book is called The Pythagogos um, or The Instructor, is sometimes the translation... Um, The instructor, it means, uh, pedagogos, it means a person who is educating children, so it's a, and it's a a sort of long book, it's a a kind of handbook on how to live as a Christian, and this, uh, as far as I know, I think is also a kind of uh, unique book for, in the early church, I don't think there's any other, uh, certainly not before him, I'm not, I'm trying to think of you know, but uh, what he does is he gives you an account of how to live every aspect of your life in a Christian way, and this includes how should you dress, how should you eat, what should you eat, how sh- should you eat it that you shouldn't eat. You know, don't gobble your food, don't pick at your food, don't uh, don't spill your food on your on your uh, on the on the tablecloth. So all kinds of uh, advice about uh, how to drink. That he does he allows drinking wine. He says, well, you could drink wine, but drink it in moderation. You know, if you get drunk, that's disgraceful. Uh, what kind of clothes wear? What kind of jewelry? So he permits. You know, jewelry. He's not a uh, let's say kind of a, an absolutist. He doesn't say you can't wear anything, any jewelry, but uh, or but but only you know what's appropriate <laughs> to Christians, not to be overdoing it. Uh, how to how to talk uh, so that you're not in a kind of loud laughs or anything like that, but uh, speak moderately. Uh, how to walk, how to you know walk? Don't walk so that uh, make a spectacle of yourself, but to be dignified. Uh, there's just a, a, a ton of this. Also, um, it tells you kind of you know it's very interesting because it gives you a picture of of everyday uh, life and and how the Christians should behave in all this. And you might think, uh, reading this, well, gee, you know, what is this? All these, you know, rules about um uh, every aspect of, you know, what kind of clothes to wear, all and how to go to the bath, you know, the public baths, what you should do there, what you shouldn't do. Um, uh, it all seems um kind of petty, you know, what why am I bothering to read all this? But the point that he's <laughs> making without he's not doing you know, he sort of makes it um in a kind of roundabout way the point is, he's he's talking to people who are hearing the other side of this, Gnosticism, who says basically, you don't you reject this world. You don't doesn't matter how you live in this world because uh, everything in this world isn't me, is meaningless. So you can uh, you know live however you want. But the uh, or the or the anchorites who say that well we have to reject normal life completely and part of um, what he's talking about is is married life, the life in the family, uh, production, having children, uh, uh, how to run the household, with the proper relations between all the people in the in the family. He's what he's doing is he's defending <coughs> normal life, saying that the Christian does live the life of this world, that that and that he does live in the family. He does that and that. And that, not like the Gnostic who says, well, but but none of it matters. You know, sure, I can go do what I want, but it doesn't matter. No, we think that actually all of these things do matter because the material world is created by God and therefore the, the way we use the material world is important. And so the true Christian is the one who is using the material world in the way that God intended and not uh, not rejecting it or not misusing it. Yes.
1: As, as I recall, when I read that, uh, I, I guess I, mean, you know, I, I, I agree with you generally that that he doesn't like prohibit mm-hmm. all kinds of things. You know, yeah. Saying that they're evil, but uh, he also is. You know, it, it all it sounds pretty monastic actually, as far yeah. as the colors go. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't want people, you know, wearing all kinds of fancy colors. Yes. Uh, it's pretty much white. Uh, when it comes to you know, no dyeing of hair or yeah. picking out yeah oh that's right no. yeah. of yeah things like that you know, yeah well like <coughs> and, and sort yeah. of, you know like trying to make your, your appearance uh you know yeah. sort of vain uh vainly uh you know looking in mirrors
0: and, and all yeah.
1: those sort of
0: things so. well because again he's uh, he's not rejecting participation in the world, but what he's saying is that we do participate in it, but we participate in it in a Christian way, and therefore the way we do all this, you know, is is important. And so we should try to do it in a way that's honoring to God. So it's it's kind of, you know, the temptation when you're reading this book is to sort of find it amusing, I guess, you know, that it's all this uh, uh, prescriptions and things. But on the other hand, I I think uh, it's, it's actually very helpful because it's uh because it's giving in fact this positive view of normal uh normal life in the world and, and normal married life with that as part of as part of the the life of the Christian that ultimately leads to salvation. Because when he'll one of the things he'll talk about he'll use the term um the Gnostic uh and okay that sounds like well so is he interested in gnostics up here well the term gnosis is just a greek word for knowledge and so the um the gnostic teachers were teaching that they had secret knowledge which would lead you to salvation right but the uh what what he's doing is saying just like so um uh Irenaeus's work is called against um the the the, the against it's yeah, you know, that's but that's what we call it, but that's not his name for it. His name was against uh false gnosis, against the, the false what's falsely called knowledge. And so he uh is sort of following that line in saying that well, that the Gnostics are teaching a false knowledge, but that the Christian um acquires a true knowledge, and so he uses the term Gnostic uh, the true Gnostic is what he calls it, as being the true Christian, the Christian who fulfills the Christian life in a way. What uh, later on we might call sort of um, going towards, uh, you know, theosis, union with God. He's not. He is not mystical though. But he's talking about, although he's talking about Christ dwelling within us, that we are able to live the Christian life because we have Christ within us, and as we uh, surrender to what Christ would like us to do, because Christ is the teacher inside of us, and and so if we follow His teachings, we will ultimately live as the true Gnostic, the one who is perfectly conformed to God's will in the way of, in our life. Um, and that so what's interesting with that is that this this process of becoming i mean it is somewhat ascetic uh, as he, as uh, bob was saying that we don't just uh, give into the world but it's a, it's a, a life that is um, compatible with married uh, family life and and the life it's just it's the life of the christian not not the life of a particular um, sect of people cut off from the world or a particular way of living that's uh, that's only for certain people the third book that he wrote was called the uh, the carpets or stromata. It's it's um, seems kind of a funny name but it's a, it's a the Greeks had these uh names for their type of books and carpets it just it just um uh, means like uh a collection of essays because uh, each one meaning that they're not connected so it's not a book all about one topic but Uh, what we might call an anthology. So that's what what that means. This is, um, there's eight uh, kind of essays about various topics, but it's in here that Clement develops, let's say, what we might call his sort of more theological uh, writings. And I'll just go back to the top... And this is where the uh, the point that you mentioned uh, about the relationship of to um, to Greek philosophy, like uh, Justin Clement focuses on the logos. Um, the logos of course, is of course the term used in the Gospel of John to refer to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in platonic philosophy uh the logos is it's coming from the one and the logos is the one who reveals the one god the good or the or the true the one god to the rest of the uh world uh and actually there's it's uh, it's this kind of co- compatibility between platonic uh descriptions of god and Christianity that made it easy for people studying Platonic theology, uh, philosophy to embrace Christian theology. So both Justin and, and Clement um, are, uh, you know, using this term logos, which is which is what the Christians who had the term uh, from from the New Testament when they saw it in the Greek philosophy, they realized the compatibility of the two, and so that the, the uh, they kind of seized on that compatibility as a way of integrating uh, Christian theology of the Trinity into uh, greek Greek thought. The logos um, is revealing the Father and he reveals God to the whole universe now whereas Justin had talked about how the logos was revealed in the Old Testament and also in Greek philosophy. Clement goes much further and talks about how God is intending to save the whole world. And so the Logos reveals um, himself to all people. And so, you know, the Old Testament is one thing. Greek philosophy is another. But then he goes on, he talks about the Druids and uh, the uh, the gymnosophists in India. So the, the Hindus and Buddhist uh, people there. Uh, and then the 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 Magi in in uh, in Persia. So the uh, what do call the Brahmin? I don't know what, the, what those people in India are called. But the what do you call them? Well, the, uh, so the Zoroastrians. Yeah, that would be the, the the Magi are part of the Zoroastrian system. But in India, what do they call those holy people in India? What's the name for them? Uh, gurus. gurus. Okay, I'll call them gurus. So gurus, what they. Uh, that all of these people and oh in the ancient egyptians that all of these people uh, received inspiration from the logos that led to the truths within their religion oh and also he besides doesn't just talk about philosophers he's also interested in the in the poets that the uh, the greek poets uh, so like in homer and such uh, you know that that all of the the religious truth that's in all of these people is coming from the Logos. So, in everything, there's good. There's something from God in all of it. And it's all been given by God providentially to prepare people for the coming of Christ. Then, this, um, but, he says that because of of a uh, fallen humanity uh, demons uh, that what has happened is that the truths coming from the logos are not preserved purely but are corrupted in each one so that there's elements of good but that the human nature has has uh, you know deformed the truth in each one of these so The coming of Christ, when the Logos Himself now comes down and becomes Christ on earth, part of what He's to do is He's the Christian Church is bringing each of these people into the knowledge that their that He is the fulfillment of all of the truth in each of their uh, religions and each of their well or poetry or work whatever whatever was good throughout the whole world is fulfilled in Christ and the church's job is to uh, bring that knowledge to all of them and also to um, to correct the, the whatever errors have come in and this is uh, I think Clement has this wider point of view because if you remember his teacher Pantanus had gone as a missionary to India and so is not just uh, thinking in terms of the Greek world and the Greek philosophy but he's thinking now that you know there's There's a bigger world out there, and all of the that all of these people uh, were created by God, and they're all intended for salvation. So that's why He has this very broad uh, perspective. Yes.
1: Is is origin going to come later, or has he already happened?
0: He is. um, He's a student. He's a young man, uh, actually, who went attended Clement's classes. Uh, And there
1: seems to be a school of thought that's developing here with right. the central
0: notions. Yes, right. Well, I mean, um this is of course seems very similar to what Justin is saying. Now, Justin of course is a person coming from the similar background um and he would have died when uh Clement was a young man, but as Clement was traveling around, probably he learned uh from well because remember uh, Justin had the school in Rome, so his his teachings would have been uh thought there and, and he could have probably met people who had taught that. But he uh I think from Pantanus's influence, you know, is how he it comes to expand this notion. The uh one of the other um you know, things that there's like I said there's eight of these uh stromata and they talk about he it kind of there's a lot of about living the the uh, the Christian life about being the true Gnostic what does all this mean the role of faith um, in a in a more spiritual sense okay in the in the in the instructor he's talking about okay the you know how do we live day to day whereas the, in the stromata, he's talking about um, the spiritual life that leads to mm-hmm. the uh, kind of union with christ, although he doesn't talk uh, kind of like said uh kind of in a Metaphysically here, but kind of, but but uh, in terms of this, the life uh, that is fulfilled in Christ, being being the uh, the true Gnostic, the true uh, knower of God. Yes.
1: Um, the Gnostics in Alexandria, mm-hmm. their background were they like Jewish Gnostics, pagan
0: Gnostics, yeah. or corrupted Christians, or where were they come from? I mean, where... Well, all three, because um, the Church in, in Alexandria. Uh, was came from Palestine, from the Jewish Church of Palestine, from the manuscript tradition. There we see that it's it's very strongly connected with the Palestinian Christian Church. However, out of so out of that Jewish Christ, Christian milieu, uh we also had, and Alexandria had a very large Jewish population itself, as well as being a center of Greek philosophy. So there were Gnostics who were uh, Pagan Gnostics, okay, because Gnosticism is the importation of dualism. You could do that as a as a pagan. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a number of, of Jewish Gnostics at that time, and then you had uh, Gnostics who adopted uh, certain portions of Christian doctrine and sort of um, were syncretistic, <coughs> combining those elements. <coughs> and then you had also <coughs> Christians who became enamored of, of gnosticism as um what was pre- presented as a higher more spiritual form of the christian life and in a way this is what clement is combating he's saying well yes there is uh, you know a, a high spiritual calling for the christian but it's not gnosticism it's it's the true gnosticism mm-hmm. which the true um mm-hmm. following of christ is mm-hmm. is that higher spiritual life mm-hmm. Uh, One of the other things that he talks about in the Stromata is the importance of martyrdom. So we have the life in the world, but that the uh, true Christian is able to give up that life, give up the family and all the things that uh, are good, but we give them up to uh, follow Christ when the need arises. And this is also uh, a uh, rebuke to Gnosticism. If you remember, the Gnostics felt that martyrdom was unnecessary, and so that uh, when they were uh, brought before the Roman authorities, they would just go ahead and sacrifice. Because, of course, what they did in the material world didn't matter anyway. So they would sacrifice. And they felt that Christ, because they believed that Christ was only a spirit, that he had not suffered in this world. So, again, the, the, what you do in this world being irrelevant, why should you be suffering? So, um Part, so uh, Clement, on the good side, is saying, "Well, no, we should have, uh, you know, we should enjoy the things that God made." But on the other side, that we also have to accept the suffering in this world that Christ suffered. So we don't uh, we don't just avoid suffering, but that, that 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 martyrdom is actually a holy calling from God. Um, these are the three main works. I just, you know, is they're in the anti nicene Fathers. They're in volume two which is uh, in the Red uh, series. And uh, there was another (coughs) major work that does not survive uh, called the Hippotyposis, which means the uh, sketches. And Clement was apparently a very uh, big uh, exegete of the (coughs) scriptures. In the works we have, he quotes the Old and New Testament frequently. But in the Hippotyposis, it was a commentary... On the, uh, on the on the Old and New Testament, um, apparently very large commentary, but um, his type of in Egypt uh, in Alexandria there had been a Jewish uh, author named Philo, who I guess I maybe should have mentioned earlier, but uh, Philo was uh, someone very similar to Clement in a way. He was uh Jewish but he became interested in Greek philosophy and the Greek philosophers <clears throat> they were in order to um to deal with the Greek mythology they had invented a method of interpretation called allegorical interpretation where is that the stories of the myths which of course on the surface seem quite disgraceful they say well really that has a um uh, a symbolic significance, an allegorical significance that is actually spiritual or, in this case, philosophical. And so the uh, the ancient the uh, Greek ph- philosophers used allegorical interpretation to explain the uh, stories of Homer and so on. Um, but Philo, he used the allegorical method to explain the Old Testament, and so. This way, um, what he did was he then saw um, truths in the Old Testament that were similar to the Greek, uh, what the Platonism, Greek Platonism I think was his name. but in this way he could say, well really those things are are in the Old Testament too, but you have to use allegorical interpretation to see them. So the allegorical method, in a way, so what Philo is trying to do is trying to... um, in a sense, combine the uh, wisdom of Greek philosophy with the the uh, wisdom of the old testament and to show how they are compatible so Clement, in the same way, is using uh, this allegorical method as part of his uh, program too. so the uh, interpretations <coughs> are also he he um, part of in the stromata also he talks about how uh, things in the scripture are revealed by God through allegory. And so that the stories are not all just on the surface uh, historical events, but that these events have spiritual significance. And in the New Testament, you have a similar kind of typological exegesis. So he's not just, uh, you know, the dangers with allegory, of course, is that you can, you can, um it's not you can use it in an unlimited way i mean you can you can kind of make up allegories that uh probably were not intended by god but uh but it's but it was a method that was commonly used to see a um a spiritual significance behind it, it was it was common um uh, in a, let's say a more restricted sense in the New testament times and other earlier uh not just philo but other uh, jewish interpretations as well of the Old Testament, the uh, the bulk what what the bulk of this book is lost. Part of the reason is probably that in uh, the 800s, the uh, Patriarch Photius was before he was patriarch, he was a very learned person, and he and his friends would read all kinds of books and discuss them, and then they would write down their conclusions, and they, and they wrote in their book is called the uh, the Library or the Bibliotheque. It's a uh, a big book and, and it's a great book because it tells us about lots of other books that don't survive anymore. Well, one day they decided to read Clement's uh book of, of exegesis and they weren't very happy with it. They they felt that it had errors in it and things and part of this um is that you know, by the eight hundreds Christian theology was all kind of very exactly parsed out, you know, as to what expressions you could use and how everything was supposed to be said. And Clement, writing uh, in 200, you know, didn't uh, have the benefit of all that. So, but they, uh, but there may have been some things in there also that were his opinions that were wrong. So anyway, they. Photius is very critical of the book. He says, you know, a lot of it's good, but he has some some wrong opinions, and that may be why, um, you know, not everybody went to the trouble to to copy it. There are fragments of the book uh, in certain authors that. Had quoted parts of it, but, but as a whole it didn't survive. I also want to mention there's a um, <laughs> there was a fragment recently, uh, I guess well, maybe originally in the 50s but in the 70s it was kind of popularized this uh, fragment of supposedly a work by Clement quoting a um, lost apocryphal gospel of Mark. I don't know if you've have you heard of that but that was a uh, a big sensation uh because some people were suggesting well that that was actually the real gospel you know the original gospel because because it's the 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 fragment portrays it as being a uh, spiritual gospel of mark which was kept secret and only used for the uh, the initiates you know whereas the one that he that we the church has is is one written for the common people and this um uh so people then, you know, started to uh, say, well, okay, that's the real Christian gospel, you know, that was hidden away and the church never let anybody see it. Um, that, uh, there's two, two things. One is that there's a, a, a group of scholars who just think that actually the person who found it, um, forged it, that it's a, all a forgery. Uh, there are others, the other possibility would, you know, that is also that the, uh, there may, this may be, um, a legitimate gnostic fragment but i mean the type of the the um the attitude of of the common people versus the uh the you know kind of uh, initiate people uh, this is something that's very common in gnostics as a part of gnostic uh theology that that ordinary people don't have capacity for spiritual knowledge and that only those who learn the special gnostic teachings are able to be uh you know, saved or kind of reached that higher spiritual level. Uh, So it wouldn't be surprising if it were, you know, a Gnostic uh, document, but it doesn't uh, seem to have very much uh, to commend it as being part of any type of uh, early Christianity that we are familiar with. So it's, uh, but it was kind of a sensation. The problem was the, uh, so he kind of brought it out and then the original text that it was based on was lost. Uh, So that kind of put people, you know, so I guess maybe that's why, if you haven't heard of it, that may be why. Too, but. There'll probably be a movie about it. I'm sure, make, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised there wasn't one back then, but, uh, but that was, uh, anyway, it's a small thing, but it, but it kind of was, a because it was ascribed to Clement, I'll just I'll mention it. All right, do you have any questions about Clement or anything else, actually? Oh, okay. Did you have your hand up? Oh. Or you just... Who,
1: who are we do next
0: time? Origin? That's mm-hmm. uh, ah. Clement's student. Uh, did you have?
1: Yeah. Um, how orthodox is Clement considered
0: Well, he was um, considered a blessed saint uh, all the way, you know, pretty universally up to the eighth century, and then at that point, you know, they he was, was used less often, and the. Uh, probably photius's negative judgment of him uh, of his work may have, may have discouraged people he also uh he's kind of a you know he's talking that he's interested in the true Gnosticism, which is this this kind of higher spiritual life but he is you know before the um, monastic movement really takes off so he's not particularly talking about the uh, importance of virginity or you know his married life to him is sort of the norm. And so that may be also a reason why he was not quoted as often. But he is, uh, I mean, when you see this in the 300s, I mean, his ecclesiastical history is full of quotes of Clement. Um And so, um, you know, I think traditionally he was considered a saint, uh, but he's just that his works, were not as relevant to later authors, other than I mean, the, the, I think from the uh, the apostolic traditions about the early church that that of course was always interesting, but uh, but he but he didn't really address the theological concerns of later times, so that's why he kind of became less copied and less uh, less uh, revered. Uh, did you have
1: a? <laughs> well, I wanted to um, recommend a, a book. Um, hmm. That talks about the when you were talking about the logos and the different mm-hmm. um, religious traditions and stuff. Um, Christ, the eternal Tao. Oh, okay. He goes fairly deep into um, Taoism and shows how um, mm-hmm. the logos was the right. Tao. And,
0: yeah. And, uh, yeah, I would say that's right. That that book is really writing from the same perspective of I mean, yes. When did the
1: when did the school of Alexandria all come crashing down? Well, was it a was it a gradual thing or a Muslim um, thing?
0: Probably. I mean, the school of as as a as a school, you don't hear about it continuously. But of course, uh, I mean, the uh, patriarchs of Alexandria, Athanasius, uh, Theophilus, Cyril were all great theologians of the church, and in a sense, perhaps, uh, what happened is the church grew, uh, you know, educational establishment grew, too, and so it wasn't just uh, limited to, you know, one philosopher in Alexandria teaching, but that uh, you have all these monasteries, and also you didn't have, you know, at this time, the the city is mostly pagan, right, and uh, so they were you know, and isolate the church trying to reach the pagans whereas as the as the city becomes christian uh there's less uh you know it's it's less a a focus thing i mean of course christian uh in a sense the idea of a Christian philosophy of being able to combine the good things of philosophy with Christianity became the norm for the church fathers so by the way, that's there if you took Tertullian and and Tatian on one side, I mean they're kind of the opposite they're the rejectors of philosophy. And uh, Justin Clement, and then the Cappadocian Fathers later, uh, or to a certain extent, you know, they're all willing to sort of work with philosophy, with Greek philosophy, and uh, but realize it has to be molded.